invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have one, or on your phone to Proverbs chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 15, Proverbs 12, 11 through 15, for uh, God's word to be read to us this evening. Let's read it together. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but whoever follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. An evil man is ensnared by the transgressions of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. For the fruit of his mouth, uh, by the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hands comes back to him. The way of the foolish is right in his own eyes, uh, but a wise man listens to advice. Let's bow before our God and ask for his direction and help as we look at God's word together. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are dependent on you uh, to receive, O oh Lord, good benefit from your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would receive it, that we would realize the treasure that we have in you, the living God. We pray that you would turn us, uh, Lord, from our wrong ways, uh, that you would humble us before you, and that we might uh, experience again and again your renewing grace. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible again, I would invite you to turn to the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis chapter 20 this evening. Uh, we're going to read the complete chapter together as we look at God's word together. Later, you might uh, read to Genesis chapter 12 because it will make uh, more sense, it and this passage, when you read them both. But let's read Genesis chapter 20 together. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerir, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not yet approached her, and so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he might pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What is this that you have done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. 
And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see and uh, that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in all this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And uh, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do for me in every place to which we shall come. Say of me, uh, he is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and men and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah's wife to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my, the, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. Abraham's wife. There ends a reading of God's holy word. You may be familiar with the movie Mary Poppins. Uh, in it, uh, the two children, Jane and Michael, jump on the bed after their first day with uh, the amazing Mary Poppins. Uh, Jane then asks her this question, Mary Poppins, you won't ever leave us, will you? And then Michael, filled with excitement, looks at his new nanny and says, Will you stay if we promise to be good? Mary tucks them in and replies to them, This is a pie-crust promise, easily made, easily broken. When you consider your own problem, uh, promises, are they easily made and easily broken? What about the living God? Are his promises easily made and easily broken? We have before us in our section of scripture today how God keeps his covenant, even through recurring failure. First, through recurring failure. You probably know well the story of the Bible that Abraham is uh, put forth as a man of faith, Romans 4 reiterates that path, that idea from a number of different uh, viewpoints. And as you look at the life of Abraham, he comes through sometimes with flying colors. He trusts God for a promise of a son, a son that comes, humanly speaking, through impossible circumstances. Sarah and him were long past having children. He is often seen in the New Testament and in the Old as an example of faith and a committed follower of the Lord. But then you come to passages such as this, and you might consider them merely an outlier in the life of Abraham. It, it wasn't the typical thing that happened. But then if you read Genesis 12, you'll find out the same thing happened uh, with Abraham. Not to a king by Abimelech, uh, by the name of Abimelech in Genesis 12, but uh, to Pharaoh. Uh, she's my sister. And it comes on the heels of God's promises and covenant in chapter 12 there. Now you figure uh, God corrected him in Genesis 12. 
and now he has learned uh, the reality of this weak area of his life and the lesson would be learned Uh, but now you come to genesis chapter 20 and you find yourself uh, there again abraham lies to abimelech i mean this in the best sense of the words this is deja vu You've been there, done that, seen that, corrected it, you think has happened with Abraham, the same way you think it should go with your children. If you tell them once, they better get it together and they better listen and respond. That's enough. But here, what do we find? We find a reoccurring failure in the same area. And his son Isaac will make the same mistake down the line, the same sin there. Now, what are we to learn from this story? Well, you could say uh, the line is wrong. And we know uh, definitely to bear false witness is wrong. You could say Abraham did not have the courage to protect his wife. He was rather concerned about saving his own hide there. Uh, he was concerned, Abraham was, about Abimelech knocking him off to get Sarah as his own wife. That's not going very deep in the text. As we dig a little deeper in the text, you'll notice what was Abraham's standard policy when he went to different places. Verse 13 tells us that when God caused me to wander from my father's household, I said to her, Sarah, this is a kindness you must do to me at every place in which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Hmm. We don't know how many times he moved around. We don't have all the accounts there, but we find out that this was standard policy for Abraham. He flounders and he lets the circumstances dictate how he will respond rather than the promises of God. You could say Abraham lives by sight at times and not by faith. Yes, he's a better man than his nephew Lot. You remember that terrible occasion when the angels come to Lot and uh, the men of the city want to do some very wicked things. And Lot is very foolish, very bad. He uh, decides to offer up his own daughters for those wicked things to be done with. You look at Abraham and say, Abraham would never do anything like that. Not so foolish and so bad. But Abraham right here in verse 13 and in the count before us offers his own wife in a sense as a substitute. She's expendable. I am not. And what we note here is the father of the faith reacts with fear, self-protection and with manipulation in this situation. Now you try to take this all in. How do you figure with what the scriptures have to say about Abraham? Uh, Well, you begin to look at it a little more closely, and you look at your own life a little bit more closely, and you find seeds of Abraham's failure in your own heart. Here are seeds of reoccurring favor. Oftentimes when we look at the patriarchs or the heroes of the Bible there, uh, we look at their faith walk as one that was indestructible, as strong as hardened steel, not full of contradictions at points and times. And we do well to read this realistically. 
to remember this side of glory that the church and our own lives are full of contradictions at times. I illustrate the life of the patriarchs this way. Uh, the analogy, of course, breaks down if you press it too hard. But uh, if you go to a nice uh, Minnesota lake on an evening this summer, and there you are, you pick up some smooth stones by the water's edge, and you begin to skip them, throw them sideways to skip across the water. There you are, you watch it, and sometimes it's one skip and it's dead. Sometimes it makes it all the way to five different skips and skips across the water. When you do that one with five skips, you may say, say to your brother or your mother or your sister or your father, I skipped the stone five times today. That's not the complete story in a sense. At least five times, probably six, I didn't count them, at least six times the stone stopped, uh, uh, ended up touching the water. And on the last time it went in the drink and stayed in the drink there. That's the way we are to look at the faith, even of those so-called heroes of the faith. God is kind. He attributes uh, faith uh, over the long haul to them. But there are only times when the, the good times when the stone skips. But here in Genesis 12, it reminds us that the stone has touched the water numerous times. You say, why did God put it in his word? Why not uh, make it all wonderful and bright? And that would help with unbelievers. That would help with us. Well, there's at least two ways or reasons that God has mentioned uh, this account to us. It is to remind us, number one, that other than Jesus, there is really no heroes of the faith or there are no heroes of the faith. We might talk about that from Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Uh, but the tendency that we have as sinners and as Christians at times is to rivet our attention too much on people, to idolize men, to give them too much of uh, the credit. And here in Genesis 20, the balloon is popped. Our be like Mike tendencies. Abraham was like this, merely be like Mike, be like Abraham. Uh, no, we recognize that we can't achieve the Christian life in our own merit, uh, that we are in some amount just like this one. We can't earn the favor of God. You see, the focus moves from the human being alone to the fidelity of God and his promises and his covenant. Sometimes in the Christian life, we get off the mark because our emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Uh, we could say the wrong syllable, as it said. Our emphasis is on man rather than God. And what happens here is it deflates our personal pride and says to you honestly and openly, you, like Abraham, are a big mess up. The second reason the account is here, and I haven't been in your home, but I can tell you this, you struggle with a besetting sin that's been corrected not only once, not only twice, but a host of times. I'm not saying that you don't need to repent of that sin. You do. I'm not saying that it's fine and it's just all right. 
But take, for instance, your tendency to grumble. There you are, you get underneath stress, and what does your spouse pick up on? There he goes, or she goes back in her grumbling. Or you get together with your friend, and you're a support to one another, that, and that's good, and you want to bear with one another. Uh, but then you just kind of go on and on about grumbling uh, there. Or let's say your problem isn't grumbling. Your problem is when things don't go your way, you get angry. You know, that's really a lordship problem. A lordship problem, you say. Yes, it is this. You are not trusting the living God. You want to be boss of your life. And when the boss doesn't get what he wants, he complains, he grumbles, he becomes uh, angry in the process. I used to, for over six summers, drive a disposal truck in Chicago. And now, when I am in certain situations, my more aggressive driving habits resurface when I'm around the city or traffic. It's not as bad as joy. Realize that. Qualify that. It's, uh, it's better than her. Uh, but I struggle with drivers who are dopey. You know, I ask myself the question, where did he or she learn to drive? And uh, when drivers swing really wide for a turn, oh, I wonder why they're driving a truck today, you know, and it goes through and you may identify and you find yourself getting irritated by those situations. And often the Lord will remind you of the need for patience and the need to pray. Yes, even you can be paralyzed by your failures especially those persistent ones in life. But the lesson to be learned is that your failures and sins are awakening to the one who does not sin. And you recognize there is one who is always faithful, who gives his promises of salvation freely and generously, who always keeps his covenant. God keeps his covenant through reoccurring failure. Secondly, this evening, um, God keeps his covenant even through awakening a king. Uh, as we read the thing, uh, the story here, we ask ourselves, to what extent would God go to make sure his promises are fulfilled? Here is this roadblock of Abraham's own fear, his own lack of faith, his own rebellion, his own failure. He, uh, well, what would God do? God would want to see that his promises were fulfilled. And when that promise is jeopardized by a Philistine king, he sends a wake-up call to him, gives a vision of what he is at the precipice of, what he is doing wrong. Uh, he begins, Abimelech, to take Sarah into his harem. He had not yet married her. He had not had sexual relationships with her. And God sends by email a strong dream, dream to this king. And the heart of the dream is you're a dead man. And Abimelech and his household shake at that point. They shake in the morning over the God who points out their sin. You talk about a wake-up call. This is not your typical waking up in the morning uh, to your alarm, easy listening music, kind of gentle, takes you out of your slumber, and there you go. 
or maybe you set uh, your cell phone uh, alarm and you just uh, have it slightly there and it goes beep, 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 beep. And now this is like one of our children when she was growing up. It was hard to raise her from the dead, in a sense, uh, from her sleep. Unconsciously, she would hit the alarm and knock it off and then keep on sleeping. So I don't know how we came about it. I think it was her grandparents that bought her alarm clock. And you know what the name of the alarm clock was? The sonic boom. From that point on, we had foundation problems in our house uh, because of the sonic boom there. But it helped. You can guess from the description of it how loud and disturbing that alarm clock was. And here is Abimelech, and he's scared to death because the Lord's going to take him out. And he's awakened to the precipice he was standing on. Ask yourself the question, the important one. What kind of God rattles a king? Down to his bones. Take this uh, phraseology in the best sense of the word. I proclaim to you that this is a God who will go through hell and high water in order to keep his covenant. And here in the life of Abimelech and Abraham, he was showing that very reality. You ask yourself, not only what kind of God would shake up a king like this, but uh, what kind of God would rattle the world? Even a greater fidelity is found when God takes on human flesh and lives his perfect life and dies his obedient death. He's at that cross, and the song is said, uh, sung by us, were you there, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And as part of it, it says, it causes me to tremble, tremble. A God that would go that far to wake a king, a God who would go that far to wake a pagan world to his fidelity, to his covenant, to his love, to his son, his perfect son in the cross. That's a God who keeps his word in covenant. Now you go through this text and you scratch your head at times. Because we don't know the exact spiritual state of Abimelech. It's, it's hard to know exactly. But in the account, who's the better man, Abimelech or Abraham? I venture to say it's Abimelech. Abraham is rebuked by a man whose spiritual opportunities and privileges were not up to Abraham's. Abimelech deals with Sarah better than uh, Abraham does. And God's covenant partner, Abraham, nearly brings death to Abimelech by his lying. And now what happens is the Lord says to Abimelech, uh, this Abraham, he will pray for you. And you're going, what in the world? Shouldn't it be? It almost seems like the other way around. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, you come from seeing Abraham as a paragon of intercession in Genesis 18 to a practitioner of deception in Genesis 20. Now you go and you scratch your head and you say, strange logic, this guy who created the problem, Abraham is the one who's the intercede to save the Philistine king. How ironic. How do you explain that? How do you package that? With one little word, the word grace. Grace. 
powerful grace, not merit. God was sovereign to bless and to see that as people were a blessing, his flawed people, he will see to it that his people are blessed and ultimately a blessing and nothing will stop the living and the true God. And so God keeps his covenant, even awakening a king. The third point tonight, and there's four of them, is God keeps his covenant bringing about the miraculous seed. Bringing about the miraculous seed. If you look at the account, I I didn't go back through it, but I think there's like seven times or more, seven or eight, where the term wife, one time it is the woman, is used. At the beginning of the account in verse 2, it talks about his wife, Sarah. Towards the end of the account in verse 18, it says Abraham's wife, Sarah. That in the scripture is called inclusio, used in the Old Testament often. It's like bookends, that frame of passage, and tell you everything that is in between stands together. And so you begin to work your way through the text, and you find in verse 3, Sarah is called the woman. In verse 7, she is called the man's wife. In verse four, uh, verse 11 and 12, Abraham calls her my wife. And in verse 14, it uses his wife. So if you're not a rocket scientist, you can figure out pretty quickly what the passage is about. It has something to do with the wife. And why is this? Is this a marriage text for us to uh, grab and benefit from? Simply put, and then I'll explain, it's all about the miraculous seed. All about the miraculous seed. It's all about what would happen in Isaac. We know from the chapter before us that God closes all the wombs of the household of Abimelech until the sin is dealt with there. In verse 18, it tells us that explicitly, uh, that that's how it happened. That's what the Lord did. Now, if you look in your Bible, you look down to chapter 21, notice verses 1 through 7. What's it about? It's about an open womb. Uh, Notice verse 1 of chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised, and then Isaac is conceived and born. It comes on the heels of this account about wombs being closed, but the next one is about wombs being open and the birth of Isaac there. If you put the two accounts together, you sandwich them together, God closes and opens the womb of a couple who is getting help from a geriatric social worker, wondering, how do you cope with old age, Abraham and Sarah? And all bets seem to be off. All possibilities seem to be a dead end. And then uh, right here, the seed is being and the very promise is put in jeopardy. Abraham almost traded it away for his own protection and old safety as well. And what is God doing? He's exhausting all human possibilities for a son. The Lord of the covenant is showing that he would promise, and only when it seemed like all was dead ends, 
that the promised seed would come. So it might be clearly seen that the fulfillment of the promise depends on the miraculous God himself, that deliverance is only found in the Lord. And Isaac is born to a 90-year-old woman long past menopause and a dad who was 100 years old. Praise God for the miraculous birth of Isaac, a wonder of wonders that only God could perform so that our trust would not be in ourselves or what we could connive or do or plan or merit or perform, but in the living God of grace and mercy, the God who alone saves. So God was so set on being faithful to provide and deliver. Isaac is the promised son. But if you read the whole Bible, you realize there was a second promised son. As you compare the account of the sacrifice of Isaac and God stopping uh, Abraham there, it talks about Isaac as the only son. Well, technically not. There was Ishmael. But for all intents and purposes, he was the only son because God was painting a picture of something that would happen nearly 2,000 years later. The Son of God would come from glory and heaven, take on human flesh, and a virgin would be found to be with child by the supernatural and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, and a son would be born who provides all the answers to our deepest needs and problems. It was all of God and all of his doings alone, and so praise goes to his glorious name for the second son. And we trust God's faithfulness to his promises and his covenant. What depths the Lord went through to send his own son to live in our lowly, sin-cursed world. He will totally, without sin, what depths he would go to so that the promises of God in Christ Jesus might be yes and amen. And future blessing to the nations would come through the promised seed for Abraham, Isaac, but how much more through the greater Isaac, Jesus. God would swear on his very life that I will fulfill my promise. God keeps his covenant, bringing about the miraculous seed. Lastly, this evening, with his sovereign determination. God keeps his covenant with his so sovereign determination. What comes clear in the passage, we shouldn't deny it, is Abraham's mess-ups, his rebellion, his sin, his lack of trust. But what comes to the forefront through it is that mercy is not given on the basis of merit. That salvation, as Jonah proclaimed, is of the Lord. That salvation depends on a faithful Lord and him alone, not on his unfaithful servants. Abraham puts the whole program of salvation in a sense at stake. He's cowardly, and he abandons his wife to a king, would bring her into, bring her into his harem and have sex with her. But God's divine intervention brings blessing out of a situation of deadly peril as he wakes uh, Abimelech up. God is a God of life and death, 
who opens closes and closes wombs, who closed Abimelech's household wombs, but opened Sarah's womb in the very next chapter. What do we have here? We have a mighty promise on the table. Abraham would jeopardize the plan, not really in the sovereignty of God, but God would protect Abraham, even afflicting the king's household as he did with Pharaoh in chapter 12. In other words, that the Lord is so faithful to his promise, he even overrides Abraham's foolishness. The human partner in the covenant is unfaithful, but God is faithful, and he works his elective purposes in his life. God chose to bless Abraham and Sarah. God chose uh, to have a special love for them in his sovereignty and elective work. And there now the chapter really shows that backdrop to it all. The passage is arguing this, that God is determined to bless his people and fulfill his promises even in the midst of our own failings. Now there's great hope. Do you not love a God who resolves to protect his seed and bless his children? The God of sovereign power who will make sure that his promises are fulfilled, the promises of the covenant we can bank on it. We can live our life and death on those promises. There are no pie crust promises with God. He doesn't make them. Brueggemann, uh, commenting on this section, says, it's a long quote, but Abraham emerges from the narrative with his power and authority not only intact, but enhanced. That is, the one who lies is still the one preferred. The morally upright one, Abimelech, is still dependent on Abraham. The preeminence of Abraham here rests not with Abraham's virtue, but with God's promise. The story has a strangeness about it, perhaps because the narrator wanted to make a point that would be Moses. As it stands, the text makes the claim that Abraham is chosen by God, not by works, not even faith, which is feeble here, but only by God's incredible grace. Goes on. Thus, we can hardly advance on Calvin's summary, the infirmity of man and the grace of God. The infirmity of man, the weakness of man is very evident here, but God's grace overrules What do we owe to grace? What do we owe to this God? We owe everything. The reality of this text is, as Ralph Dale Davis concludes, there are times when faith does not show up, but God does. Thank God for grace and fidelity to his promises. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we gather before you with grateful hearts for your incredible and amazing grace. Thank you, O Lord, for extending it to one such as we, Lord, with checkered past, with a messed up presence, Lord. We realize that the Bible clearly proclaims 
a message that salvation is all of grace. Thank you, O God, for it. Cement that in our hearts and minds, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.